Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm excited to begin a new series and invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 16. As we embark upon this new journey, simply entitled The Life of David, we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you're using our pew Bibles, there before you, that's on page 283. Page 283, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we begin this journey that we will be in for the coming months ahead. I remind you of a principle that you know, but oftentimes we don't ponder, and that is this simple principle that leaders matter. Leaders matter at work, leaders matter in our country, leaders matter in church, leaders matter in every spectrum of life. Leaders matter. Good leadership can inspire confidence. Good leadership can unite people around a common vision and a common mission. Poor leadership, in contrast, can distract from that mission. Poor leadership, in contrast, can deflate morale. You don't believe me. I mean, if you're, if your supervisor or your boss at work reminds you a lot of Michael Scott from the office, you understand that leadership matters. And as you're dusting off your resume and shopping around for where the next stop is going to be, you, you know intuitively leadership really does matter. Leadership isn't only seen through the leaders of history nor is history only viewed through leaders, but history is nonetheless and, and, and it's not less than leaders. The rise and the fall of leaders. I mean, think about if you're given the assignment to, to write the history of the United States, but you cannot reference the, the life nor the influence of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton or Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass or Theodore Roosevelt or Martin Luther King Jr. What story are you actually telling? Or if you're given the assignment to, to chronicle the last hundred years of Great Britain, but you can't reference Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill, or you're gonna give the development of France without mentioning the, the life nor the influence of Joan of Arc or Napoleon. H history is not just the study of leaders, but it's not less than that. Leaders matter. They matter in your workplace. They matter in the communities that we live in. And they matter for the country that we love. Le leaders really do matter. And the Old Testament is not just the story of the rise and fall of leaders. But in the Old Testament, you see the rise and the fall of leaders. If you're going to make a Mount Rushmore of the significant leaders of the Old Testament, there's no doubt that you're going to have on that Mount Rushmore depiction, you're going to have King David. King David, who is far ranging in his description and biography, King David, who is a poet, King David, who is a musician, King David, who's a warrior, King David, who's a loyal friend, King David, who is a national statesman, King David, who is called a man after God's own heart, but he is a man, is he not? 
meteoric rise is only rivaled by his catastrophic fall. And for the nation of Israel, leaders really did matter. And I want us to begin this study looking at King David, asking the question, what does David's life tell us and teach us about the God who calls, but also the God who equips and saves? Hear the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we begin the study in verse 1, followed by verse 6 through verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. Then to verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord anointed, the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse called Benadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, hey, are all of your sons here? I want you to put your finger there at the end of verse 11. We're gonna come back to it. I want you to see that the rise of, the, of David is, is the fall of King Saul. The first Samuel is a tale of two kings. And, and in the truest sense, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times for the nation of Israel. But 1 Samuel doesn't start in a palace. It doesn't start with the anointing of Saul. It starts with the mother's intercession before God and the birth of the prophet of God named Samuel. And Samuel is given the task to be a spokesperson to the people of God from God himself. And the people of God reject the voice of God, Samuel, but more than that, they're rejecting the direction of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the crux of the problem when the people of God look around them and, and themselves and they, they look to the other nations and they want a king. I mean, you have it described for us very aptly here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And then our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The nation of Israel is a theocracy. I mean, the nation of Israel has God as its king, God as its warrior, God as its director. But the people of God, they look around and they say, hey, everybody else has a king. What are we missing out here? We want something that's a little bit more tangible. We want something that, that we can appoint, we want to control. So really they, they're usurping the direction of God and there is a, a mutiny at hand. We want a king. Samuel tries to reason with them. You are called to be a light to the nations and what you wanna do is to be like all the rest of the nations. This is not going to end well. But God tells Samuel, give them what they want, 
And eventually they will realize they don't want it. Now Saul is the first king. And for all practical purposes, Saul fits the bill. He, he is out of central casting, ideal king. He looks the part, he's got charisma, taller than everyone else, is able to inspire, to be able to, to motivate. Saul is, is the person that if you're going to, to choose the king, Saul's the, the first kid that's going to be picked. When, when the teams come out to recess, you, you want Saul on your team. The nation of Israel said, we want Saul for our king. And at first, it seems like it was a really good decision. Saul appoints wise leaders. He makes strategic military leadership decisions. He is decisive, no doubt. But what happens, as, as he seems to be the perfect king, we begin to realize perfect he is not. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have this description of Saul's true color shining through. Now you read 1 Samuel chapter 15 and you think, hey, here's Saul being merciful. They've gone to battle with the Amalekites and God has given Saul this clear directive to be able to, to not save back the best of the spoils of war. The people... The Israelites say, we want that. We want the best of the swells. So what does Saul do? He licks his finger and he holds it up and sees which way the wind is blowing. And the wind of popular opinion blows uh, more powerful in the soul of Saul. And he relents to the people and he ignores the clear command of God. And God will discipline Saul and the discipline is strict the very anointing of God upon Saul to be the king is going to be removed and God is going to raise up another king. How will he do that? He does it in a rather strange story. It's a story that I find, and maybe you do too, is, is one of the most endearing stories in all of the Old Testament. It's the story of a father with his sons and the one son that didn't even get the invitation to come to the party. It starts this way where Samuel shows up on the scene and he's with Jesse's sons and he looks and he sees the oldest son, Eliab, and he says immediately, this has got to be the guy because why? Samuel, the prophet of God, is still thinking like the, the people of God. He is still thinking who's the tallest, who fits the part, who's going to be able to inspire and Eliab is that guy. So even the prophet of Samuel is still working in, in the same realm as the people of God that got them in trouble in the first place. And then in one of the most profound passages that continues to echo through the generations, God has to step in and say, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesse gathers every one of his sons, less one, parades them before the prophet, one after the other, and like this Old Testament version of Cinderella, every brother fruitlessly cramming their feet into what will be the glass slipper the kingship. But so far, there's no Cinderella. Seven come and go. Seven uh, point or poke out their, their chest and 
have their best king-like impersonation before the prophet of God. And eventually Samuel asked what seems to be a rather strange question. Jesse, is there any chance that you forgot one of your own kids here? And he said, Jesse did, in verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, we didn't invite him. He's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Jesse sort of reluctantly says, well, I guess I've got one more. He, he, he didn't invite David because David is not king material. David is the youngest, verse 11 tells us, but that word in the original language of the Old Testament can also be translated, he's the smallest. He's the opposite of Saul. He's the opposite of his older brother, Eliab. He, he doesn't fit the bill. He is not going to be cast as the king. David doesn't get invited because he's not king material in the eyes of his father. Well, you see the text here. It seems as if the text spends a little bit of time talking about his outward appearance. It, it says that he has beautiful eyes and he's handsome. Well, in that context, this description here is actually saying, not that he looks the part, but is actually saying the equivalent of an overeager great aunt that shows up at the family reunion and pulls you aside and pulls your cheeks and says, aren't you a cute little boy? This is the description. The description is, look at David, let's pat him on the head. Little bitty David, what a cute little kid. He's not fit to be a king. We need a king that's going to inspire. We need a king who could, who could lead us out to, to battle on Friday night, to, that's going to play quarterback. We need a king that's going to be Mr. Fill-in-the-blank high school. We're going to need to be a king that's got some experience, not little bitty David. But notice in this passage here, that with the compliments and all that are not compliments, but actually a description of just how opposite this king is going to be from Saul, just how unimpressive he is going to be compared to his older brothers, that this is the very will of God for the selection of the king. Reminds us of a truth that you, you need to hear from this passage, and that is simply this, that God looks beyond the superficial, and he always looks deeper to the heart. What Samuel is looking for is the outside. What the people of God are looking for is the superficial. But what God is going to do in the selection of King David is to look to something that's far more important, far deeper. When you go home this afternoon, one uh, comparative contrast is just to read the description of 1 Samuel chapter 8 and the selection of Saul in comparison to the selection of David. Actually, Samuel, when he talks about King Saul, he talks about King Saul in verse 18 of chapter 8 in this way. He talks about Saul as your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. You see, the, the first time around, the people of God on their terms picked a king. 
this time around, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, we read, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. First time the people of God selected. This time the God of the people will select. And notice the standard. In verse 7, we have this description as as Samuel is rebuked by God. And we have this repetition of of these words, look and see. Look and see in verse 7, these very words here. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Notice what God is saying here. People are always going to instinctively look to the outward appearance. Samuel's instinct is this. The people of God's instinct is this. And guess what? Your instinct is this. My instinct is this. This isn't an us versus them. This isn't those people outside of the church. This is all of us that are here. We are pulled to what is impressive. We are pulled to what is shiny. We are pulled to what is pleasing. We are pulled to the outward and the superficial. All of us. It's not just as old as Samuel, church. It's not just as old as as the people of God. It is as old as as human history. In Genesis chapter three, we have the description, the very description of that original temptation that comes into the garden. And we read in verse six, so when the woman, what, do you hear these words? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the what? To the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here's the default. This is the default of Eve, it's the default of Adam, and it's the the default of all of us. We will by default walk by sight and not by faith. Our instinct is always to exalt the outward. It is always to make decisions based upon what we see. And God does the opposite. God is calling us to walk not by sight, but by faith. All of us would say, give us Saul. All of us would say, give us Eliab. All of us, like Jesse, would say, hey, let's keep him out with the sheep because he really doesn't fit what we need in a king. This isn't them. This is us. There's a lot of sports to watch yesterday. And really the, the story that I think will, will by far captivate the nation and has more implications for the next five to 10 years is who won the U.S. Open. And when the 19-year-old Coco Golf won that, it, it, was, it, was, it was breathtaking to watch. It was, it was something that will forever shape U.S. tennis moving forward. And it reminded me to another uh, height of the popularity of tennis in the States that goes back decades ago when you had people like Michael Chang and you had people like Andre Agassi that were playing and winning. 
And many of you are, remember Andre Agassi in a sort of, sort of flamboyant way, long flowing hair, tennis had never seen anyone like him. And he gets all these endorsement deals, but one of the deals that continues to sort of resonate is the deal that he got with the, the camera, uh, camera company Canon that had the tagline, you remember the tagline? Image is, you don't remember the tagline, do you? <laughs> Yes, yes, some of you do. One of you do. Thank you, mom, for helping me with that. <laughs> Image is everything. Image is everything. And this whole story can be described by that tagline for Samuel, for Eliab, for the people of God. Image was everything. And image, if we allow the flesh to reign, and if we allow ourselves to be swept up into the world standards, I can assure you, image is everything. The exaltation of the superficial, the exaltation of the outward, the pursuit, the endless pursuit of perfection, the endless pursuit of, of your outward perfection is, is multi-billion dollar industries that make you feel what? Not satisfied. And it is a mirage. Do not miss this. It is a mirage because the, the goal line always gets moved. There's always something else that you need to have. There's always another thing that will uh, ultimately provide you with the security that you need to feel good about yourself. Image is everything. And we put that not just upon our pursuit of the perfect physique or the perfect complexion, the perfect weight. We, we put this in the pursuit of our own image of our family and our spouse or our, our boyfriend or girlfriend. And image becomes everything. And we exalt the outside while we neglect the inside. And even in leadership, we, we begin to, to live out of this, this truth that, that image is everything. And, and as long as someone can draw a crowd, and as long as someone is charismatic, and as long as someone is slightly competent, then we will never ask the question about character. Because image is everything. And so often, even the people of God will live in the superficial, to live in the superficial and never get to what God looks at that is most important. And that is the state of your heart, your soul. And we could spend a whole lot of our life pursuing the endless hamster wheel of perfection all the while our soul is rotting. Notice in this passage, God looks beyond the superficial to the heart. But that's not the only thing that we see in this passage. Also, we see that God exalts the lowly and he exalts the unlikely to display his power and his glory. In verse 13, we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, him being David, in the midst of his brothers. I bet they were kind of surprised. 
The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What do we have here? The spirit of the Lord is descending. It is empowering David for his task that is going to be the next king. God has chosen the unlikely. God has chosen the unimpressive. God has chosen the very candidate that didn't even get the invitation to this party. God takes away the spirit, the spirit that has been upon Saul and has anointed him. And now the spirit is going to descend and it is going to indwell in David. It's very important that we don't make a, a theology of this, uh, of this description of what happens in the Old Testament. You, 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 will, you will be mistaken if you think this is how the spirit works for us as Christians. This is not. We have in Genesis the revelation, progressive revelation. At this, moment, at this point in the revelation of God, the spirit comes and descends upon people for a specific task, empowers them for that task, like building, like being a king as we have in David. That's not how the spirit descends upon us. The spirit descends upon us when we place our faith in Jesus. And you don't get half of the spirit, some of the spirit. They're not super unleaded Christians and regular unleaded Christians. You get all of the spirit. And all of the spirit seals you at the moment of your conversion. And, and it ensures that, that God will, he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. But here we have, we have this episodic example, the spirit descending, and we have this in the Old Testament. The spirit descends, empowers David. And what we discover in this specific example of the spirit having a temporary purpose for David is that God takes the ordinary and frankly, he takes the plain and even more, he takes the outcast and he chooses him to do something that is extraordinary. And do not think that that is not a theme in all of scripture. The apostle Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter one, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. We have no idea what the apostle Paul looked like. I mean, we don't have a, we don't have a picture that's attached to a resume that's embedded in the book of Philippians but we do have oral tradition that gets passed down and you come to the second century and there's this document called the life of Paul and it's written by an anonymous writer and we should not think of it as the word of God. It is oral tradition that is passed on from one generation to the next, but it's a really interesting description of how the early church would have conceived of what Paul looked like. You notice how they describe him? Do they describe him like Saul? Do they describe him like Eliab? No, he was a man of middling size. His hair was scanty and his legs were a little crooked and his knees were projecting and he had large eyes and his eyebrows met. <laughs> and his nose was somewhat long. If this isn't what Paul looked like, somebody did not like the apostle Paul when they described him. He was full of grace and mercy. At one time he seemed like a man and at another time he seemed like an angel. God is in the business, church. Understand this. He is in the business constantly of subverting our expectations, choosing the ordinary, the plain, the unlikely, the, un, uh, the outcast to do his work. For God, image is not everything. God doesn't look over the state of Alabama and say, I, I have a plan 
that I want to accomplish in this state. And I'm only looking for the people that look the part. That I can have confidence in that they can rally the troops. For God, image is not everything. I don't exactly know if this is just a completely fictional account from the second century or not. I don't know. No one knows that. But I do know this. God is in the business of subverting our expectations. He is consistently in the business in scripture of exalting the lowly and the unlikely to display his extraordinary power and his glory. And there is no greater example than this, than the life and the ministry and the purpose of the very one that scripture writers would call the son of David, Jesus himself. And a lesson that you can learn and a lesson that I can learn is by looking at our savior who spent most of his life in total obscurity. A carpenter, not a religious leader, not a, not a, not a one of, of social standing in that first century Jewish world here, but a carpenter from an out of the way place and his greatest achievements were largely, if not completely ignored by the historians of the day and even the religious leaders of the years that would come behind. Actually, his greatest achievements would strangely enough be his suffering and his eventual death a suffering and a death that would lead a way for you and me to be reconciled to a holy God. God won a victory over the ugliest of the ugliest, your sin and my sin. God won a victory over hell itself and he did it by exalting the most ordinary king of all, an obscure man from Galilee, the son of God who was raised to the most extraordinary position of all. And here's the hope that we have. If you know him, by faith trust in him, it's only then, it's only then that you can live a life that will never be ordinary again. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit dawsonchurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.